Hi, Ralph. Hi, Jim. How are you doing today? Okay, and how about you? I'm doing well today. Are you, you know, are I, you optimistic today? I'm feeling optimistic today. I am, and I've been thinking about the power that one person can have. You know, I've been thinking about that too. Ever since Amanda sent a um, a journal article about Terry Fox. Do you yeah. remember who he is? Yes, Terry Fox was uh, a young Canadian. Uh, actually, he'd grown up a bit of an athlete. And at 22, he contracted uh, bone cancer. Now, actually, it was earlier than that. Earlier than that. 18, apparently, according to the article. By 22, well, he's on his way out. Yeah, he has at this point... Um, one uh, real leg and one artificial leg. Yeah, he had one leg surgically removed. I remember that. Now, one of the things that was kind of interesting, and, you know, it's not something I would have thought anybody would have ever done, is he decided with his one leg and his artificial, uh, you know, metal limb, he would run across Canada. Yeah, I think his motivation was that he had seen uh, other people with cancer and had seen the kind of treatment that was afforded. And so his run was not just a, a, hey, I can run across Canada, but he was actually trying to raise money, right? He was raising money for cancer research and cancer treatment, and he succeeded in creating an organization that, as far as I know, still exists today, and people contribute money to it, and mm -hmm. it goes into cancer research. Very little goes to administration. Initially, apparently, he uh, raised, get this, $850 million. That's an amazing chunk of money, generally. Yeah, especially for an 18- or 19-year-old kid who had every right in the world just to sit in a corner and suck his thumb and feel badly about himself. Yeah, why me? Why, why always me? me? Yeah. You know, and the thing is that uh, Jim and I are are connected to uh, Terry Fox's story because the city that we were born and raised in was one of the cities that uh, he and his cross Canada journey ran through. And if you think of what he did, this is the equivalent of running a marathon every day for 145 days or something like that yeah you know he got up in the morning knowing that he was going to try and run 25 day or 25 miles mm -hmm. that day yeah and and the uh, the picture that um, is on the thing that Amanda sent uh, is kind of interesting there's a picture of of him uh, and there's a police car behind so I guess he had a police escort escort yeah and if you look in the background, you can see, well, it's, there's a hill, and you can see a body of water, and that just happens to be where you and I grew up, Ralph. That's just north of the Sioux. It by is. By Batuana Bay. Now, uh, not, not to sound like we're tooting our own horns here, but uh, in 1964, um, I think, four, uh, oh, I remember that one well, okay. President Kennedy... Uh, challenged everybody in the United States to attempt to walk 50 miles. Yeah, I think, was it 
John F., or was it uh, Robert Kennedy that really made the challenge? I think it was John F. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, you know, So we uh, Canadians, <laughs> not to be not, un unchallenged. Not, not to be outdone by the folk in the U.S. Decided to do a 50-mile hikes. And I remember that day, or two days actually, really well. My feet, my body, my entire, everything was so sore at the end of 50 miles. But by golly, I did it. Yes, and we both did it. And I can tell you, without, uh, without feeling sorry for myself, not only did I hurt at the end of it, but going up that particular hill. Ah, yes. Which is called, uh, locally, called the Mile Hill, because the steepest part of it is one mile. But the hill actually goes upward for over five miles. Mm -hmm. And walking up that, uh, whether it was the shallower part or the steeper part, that was sheer agony because yeah. at that point we had already walked 30 miles yeah. and it, we were tired. And just think, uh, this Terry Fox was doing this at least 26 miles you know, every day. Every day. With the idea of, of raising money for cancer treatment and cancer research. So to me, Ralph, that really is the example of how much one person can actually do to make the world a better place. Now, the article goes on to talk about something that is more disturbing for you and I, and that is the concept of, of um, medical-assisted uh, death, uh, euthanasia, and you can read the entire article. You can read the uplifting part with Terry Fox, and then the more uh, sobering part about euthanasia in Canada uh, in the article as well. And at some point, we're going to get Amanda on here, and she, she's very articulate in terms of um, uh, euthanasia and you know, uh, physician-assisted suicide, and she has some, I think, warnings for the, the rest of us here in the U.S. But things have really changed in Canada in terms of, of medically assisted uh, death. Yeah, now some of you uh, may remember um, the doctor from Detroit. Doctor, uh, Dr. Death. What was Dr. Death. Jack, Jack Kevorkian. Kevorkian, yeah. And Kevorkian was a proponent of uh, medically assisted suicide. And he did not make, uh, from my perspective, fortunately, uh, very much progress in selling that idea to the medical community in the U.S. Yeah, but, you know, that's an idea that seems to not go away. You know, a couple of the Western states are still kind of hotbeds of assisted suicide, are they not? They are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is uh, Jim was telling me about uh, having um, to have a horse and an alpaca and... Uh, a dog and a cat. A dog and a cat put down at the end of their lives when their life became fairly unpleasant for them. And they both um, died painlessly and relatively instantly. 
Yeah, as opposed to the last uh, uh, medical or uh, injection uh, uh, execution in Alabama this week or last week, where apparently the individual took two or three minutes of writhing and you know, extreme pain in order to uh, uh, to die. The upshot here is that we should have veterinarians administer um, uh, lethal doses, right? Uh, we won't go there. We won't go there, okay. no. Yeah. And, and the veterinarians won't, won't go, go there, there either. either. No. Yeah. Now, in the uh, uh, liner notes uh, under Learn More, we've got actually more things today than we usually do. We have the uh, link to Amanda's journal article, and um, uh, we also have a, a link to her um, uh, Gmail account, so you can go on there and there's a lot of stuff that she has done um, that's available you know, to anybody who wants to, uh, to, to listen to it. Uh, I met her last summer at the Kirk Center, uh, just outside of Mount Pleasant, and she was a, a Wilbur Fellow for a number of years, for a few years ago, there at the Kirk Center, and uh, uh, she's very articulate. Like I say, Ralph, we'll see if we can get her on. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if she's in uh, Ohio and Steubenville at Francescan University right now, or if she's back in Alberta. But she's someplace that we can we can get to, I think, via uh, telephone, and. The uh, there are a couple of things that are uh, in the learn more section that we, I want to kind of underline. The first one is a story that Sheila tells um, occasionally. It's not one of her uh, big repertoire stories, but I really liked it. And uh, the story is the man who grew trees, who planted trees and grew happiness. I think that's the yeah and. This is a story of a, um, I think a, a French individual who looked at the area around the north of France after, in the aftermath of a war and saw the total devastation of the land and so he began to plant trees and over a 20 or 30 mile uh, month, year, uh, uh, yes, 20, 20 years, 20, 30 years, come on Jim. Um, he had done a really good job of reforesting. Now, the uh, article that I have there, I think, comes from Wikipedia, and you can take a look at it if you want. But the one underneath is even more interesting, I think, from from a, uh, a visual point of view. We've got two people from Brazil who were uh, photographers, and they were going around the world doing their you know photographing thing. And they came back to where they grew up in Brazil and saw that it it had been deforested. I mean, you know, like cut right down. And yeah, and in Brazil, they, they do a lot of clear cutting and then they put in a crop. And the soil is such that if you're lucky, you get two, maybe three years of growing crops in this clear cut area. And then the soil is exhausted for crop growing, mm -hmm. and so it it remains uh, what to most people look like, uh, you know, devastated land that won't grow anything. A barren place, yeah. So uh, this man and his wife.
began to uh, plant trees. And um, they planted I think, over two million. At one point in the article, it says how many trees they planted. With perhaps four million and two million have survived. Anyhow, they've got some great pictures, you know, before and after pictures. These people are photographers, after all. And uh, the before pictures, you know, look desolate. Uh, look like perhaps the landscape of the moon or Sudbury, Ontario. Uh, and by the time 20 years had gone uh, past and they had been, re, you know, planting and replanting, it looked pretty good. And they've yeah. got some really good pictures of the before and after. But, you know, so in one case, we've got one guy planting trees. In, the power of one. Yeah, planting trees in, in France. We have a 18-year-old kid with cancer raising money for cancer research and cancer treatment. We have a couple of people in Brazil. You know, we're not talking about huge government agencies here, Ralph. No, if you think of it, this is basically one person or two people. Now, here in Mount Pleasant... You have a story here about this, yeah. don't you? A similar uh, one. There's a place uh, in Mount Pleasant uh, that's now a public recreation park called Sylvan Solis. And it was the property was bought originally by two doctors... Uh, Dr. Shepardigian and uh, Dr. Nogler. Dr. Nogler, and uh, they bought it. And when they bought it, it was they, in pretty bad shape, right? The front part of the property had been clear cut. Okay. And it was just basically barren ground. Mm -hmm. So they went to uh, the conservancy organization here in Mount Pleasant, which every spring uh, sells trees. Yeah, and Dr. Nogler... You can get like 25 little trees for five bucks. Yeah. Dr. Nogler bought 2,000 trees. Okay. And he and his family and Shep's family planted those trees. Okay. So the area that was clear-cut was planted with 2,000 trees, of which probably 1,500 survived and flourished. And now it is well-forested... And uh, the trees have grown to the point where the lower branches don't sweep the ground. They're two or three feet up. Uh -huh. And so 10 years from now, it'll be a nice stand of pines. Okay, so we don't have to go to France or to uh, Brazil to make a difference, do we? No, we don't. We can and sort of look around where we are and ask the question, what kinds of things are needed here? Well, you know, there's another story here in Mount Pleasant, Ralph, and that's the story of the soup kitchen. Do you remember that one? I remember that one, yeah. We have a, a place in town where people can drop in to be fed. They can get, drop in to be fed lunch. And uh, here's a college student, I think, that originated it. And you can correct me if I'm incorrect here, Ralph, but a college student saw another college student eating a sandwich, and it was a... Two pieces of bread and ketchup, I believe. And the first college student said, that's not right. I mean, we should be able to feed other college students, you know, better than a ketchup sandwich. Yeah. And he decided, this second student decided that he would do something for the community, that he would start a, you know, basically a food distribution program. And that 
That's been going on now for 50 years, I think. Yes, and uh, you know now we have the soup kitchen where uh, people who, well, let's let's not put too fine a point on it. People who are out of money, whether they're they're homed or homeless, uh, they can go, no questions asked, come in, and whatever we have for lunch in the way of soup, sandwich, salad, you can uh, eat. And for many people, that's their meal of the day. Mm-hmm. Now, again, with that power of one, right? Right. Now, the other thing that this has expanded into is uh, a place where once a month, the um, charitable food network uh, makes available food if you are a person who is. Uh, in an apartment or a, a house and you can cook, but you can't afford to buy food, which unfortunately is true for a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, you can go and, and get the canned goods, the box goods, etc., that are available at this particular month, whatever, uh-huh. whatever it is, month. whatever yeah. has been donated and... Uh, you know, basically you can eat. And the, now this is all a spin-off of that one individual who said, I want to start a soup kitchen. Yeah, yeah. So there's one other um, uh, thing under the Learn More that I thought was pretty interesting, Ralph. You and I have talked about um, long-term planning, and uh, we've both uh, sort of sh- have shaken our heads about the short-sightedness of some of the plans that we see in, in say, in government. Um, and one of the jokes that you and I have is that the Chinese have a 500-year plan or a 1,000-year plan, and we don't even know what we're going to do for lunch. You know, that's... We yeah. Don't. And so the uh, uh, there was an, uh, an organization called... The name escapes me right now. Do you remember it? Uh, it's called the Long... Long View? Long something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, they've got a 10,000-year plan, and so we just put it up there uh, for you to take a look at. Uh, if you go into, uh, I think it's projects, you can see the various projects that they have, including a 10,000-year manual for civilization. And they put together and are are putting in uh, a mountain in the United States where it's protected, uh, a mechanical clock that will be good for ten thousand years. Okay, well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that in ten thousand years, Ralph. Right. I my plan has always been to live forever, but. Uh, <laughs> and the, then there's one other thing that came up uh, in a Facebook post that. Um, uh, was sent to Sheila, and it's, she sent it on to me, and it's, I think it says something to the effect of words to live by. Anyhow, a 70-year-old who is looking forward to becoming 80 has been reflecting on his life and thinking about the things that he has learned over the years. Things like, it's better to smile than to frown. It's better to be nice to people than be nasty. And he's got 14 or 15 and so I thought those would be good words to live by for, you know, 2024. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, we would encourage you uh, not to be too Paula Anish about it, but we would encourage our listeners to say, what can I do? Yep. You know, is there, is there anything that the community that I live in is lacking and how can I help? You know, on that happy note or optimistic note, I would say, this is Jim. And Ralph. Saying, keep your stick on the ice. Because we're all in this together. together.